we've specifically designed this listening tour to really bring in the voices of those that are directly working with families and young people to say, let's engage you in the conversation about race. Let's talk about you. Where do you sit? What's your racial identity? And what does that mean to you? And then more importantly, what does that mean as an as a systems actor when you're working with young people? How does how you view your own racial identity affect how then you internally work with young people? Hey, how are you? This is Scott Bryant Comstock, and this is the Optimistic Advocate Podcast. And folks, we have a most, uh, we have a most amazing interview for you today. I am joined by Audrey Smolkin and Tula Sabanda. Now, Audrey is the Director of Child and Family Policy. She's also an instructor in the Department of Pediatrics at the UMass Medical School. She has the most amazing job. She is responsible for identifying, developing, overseeing the management of new programs, research, and evidence-based policy initiatives, all related to children and families. No small task. And as part of her job, she is partnering with organizations and individuals from throughout the state to help improve services. And her current focus is on trauma, particularly racial trauma and the long-term negative impacts on the trauma of youth. And then if that wasn't enough, we have Tula Sabanda. And Tula is with the Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative in Massachusetts. They call it JDAI for short. And she's the coordinator uh, of this effort. And she works through the Department of Youth Services. And her focus is for the oversight and implementation of the JDI initiative in Massachusetts that seeks to improve or reimagine a juvenile justice system that is anti-racist and developmentally appropriate and ensures that the right youth is in the right place for the right reasons. Oh my goodness. And, and here's what this episode is about. So you have these two amazing individuals working for really important organizations in the state of Massachusetts, both dedicated to addressing racial equity throughout the state, right? Well, we're bringing them together. Actually, they have come together on their own. And this interview is about just tapping into the magic that is this dynamic duo of Audrey and Tula as they embark on an incredible mission to provide racial equity training to providers, families, community leaders throughout the entire state of Massachusetts. How can you say, is that possible? Well, wait till you meet these two, and then you'll get an idea of how it is possible. Now, I don't keep up on the whole superhero thing, right? So I probably won't say this right, but they're like, you know, instead of the Fantastic Four, they're the Fantastic Two. And each of them brings a fantastic team of their own. They've merged together and they are doing some really, really exciting things in the state of Massachusetts. So, hey, let's get on with the interview. So, Audrey, talk to us a little bit about what you're doing. How has this Justice Center and this uh, mental health 
component come together uh, to make some change in Massachusetts? So I, what my approach was, I tricked Tula into doing trainings for all providers across the state, um, our family resource centers, our community coalitions. One concern I've had about racial equity work is it's often done in silos. And what you sometimes end up with is the people who most need to be part of these conversations and these trainings don't participate in them, either because they think they don't need them, they already get it, or because they see no reason for them. So we decided that we were going to do statewide trainings for every single community provider that is in the state. And those are launching in December, um, right around the corner. And I'm excited that we are also launching in February. The first training should happen with our school system so that there'll be a series of trauma and racial equity trainings for the everybody in the school ecosystem. We're starting with the mental health providers and then working our way out to the teachers, the administrators, and everybody who participates in the school system. I really do feel like change needs to happen across the state. And I know Tula's been working really hard on a plan of how to transform the state. I have found Massachusetts to be an unusual place in the sense that it is very liberal in some ways. We were one of the first states to have reproductive freedoms and rights for LGBT community, which is fabulous. And I'm so happy about that. But I have often felt since I moved here, I went DC, Pennsylvania, Chicago, and then here that it's not very educated about racial equity issues. And you see that play out in terms of who are the leadership of organizations who run the schools, who run the government. And so Tula is going to solve all that with a racial equity plan. Well, be, before we get to Tula, talk, talk to me about how the idea was formed, who was involved, and you know who the players were, and and and, and your footprint with that that brought you to Tula's door. So I'm just laughing. Tula, um, thinking I am so sad that moment happened because then every other day I was like, oh, and hey, I have another really good idea. She's gonna block my number one day. Um, so I have been lucky enough to partner with our Department of Children and Families and working with our Family Resource Center. So across Massachusetts, we have 27 Family Resource Centers, as well as a number of community coalitions. And they were created in legislature about five years ago to try to support families that are struggling with the thought that if you can intervene in a family when they're really struggling with a child, then you can support them. That family can stay together, reduce trauma, support the child. It's to try to prevent further involvement with state systems, because while we have some wonderful state systems, every time you have involvement with either DCF or any of the other state systems, it's hard on a family. There is nothing you don't. Our goal is always to make sure that kids can stay at home with loving parents when that can happen. It's never great when you have to have Child Protective Services involved or the juvenile justice system involved. They exist for a reason, and I'm so glad, but it's not great. So the thought behind the Family Resource Centers were if we can support families where they're at so that they can stay together and be a loving presence and raise these children with the minimal amount of trauma and disruption, then that is a good thing. The system has also started, particularly during COVID, providing much more basic needs with the thought that obviously you guys have probably heard of Maslow's Triangle. So if you don't have basic needs like housing, food, know where your next meal is coming from, clothing, all of those basics. You can't really address the emotional needs of children and family. So they provide a lot of that too. I started noticing that we were seeing more juveniles being referred to the court system for issues. 
And that if we could work to make sure that those families were able to get into the Family Resource Center that, and be received positively, then that would be great. We know that some immigrant families, as well as some families of color, may not always feel as comfortable going to community providers. That either could be a cultural issue, a safety issue, fear around getting support. So I reached out to Tula to say, I think we are seeing some families not be as welcome in Family Resource Centers in community coalitions, in their community in general, and what if we reached out and did some of these trainings? And she was so kind to me. She's like, let's do it. At a moment, she's probably looking back on, but I, I literally, she was like, let's do it. We've got to do this. The resource centers are, just, just before, just to make sure that I understand, what is that? Is that a place where people go? Is it? Yep, it's a place. Well, well now there a lot of the supports are virtual now, but it is pre-COVID and somewhat now. It is a place people go. So twenty, there are 27 of them. And if I wish I had a little visual to show you. We made as one of our marketing things to get people when they first opened up a little house so that you could see they're actually in community organizations and you can show up and say, I need, and then fill in that blank with whatever would best serve you as a family. Sometimes the I need is diapers. I need food. But often the I need is my child has issues with truancy. Can you help? I need therapy. Can you help? You know, sometimes they're referred from the Department of Children and Families for parenting groups or grandparents groups, but it's often the family themselves just coming and saying, I need help. Now that we're in COVID, it's more by appointment versus people just showing up, but they are mm -hmm. physical locations. And Tula, uh, talk to us about your footprint. So while Audrey's doing all this, talk about the work that, that you were doing before you met Audrey and how it's changed, continued. Yeah. Grown? Sounds like it's grown. <laughs> it's grown, uh, Scott. So I, so the work that JDI does, so JDI's Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative, we're part of the Department of Youth Services. It's an initiative out of the Annie Casey Foundation. So one of our goals has always been to reduce racial and ethnic disparities in our system. And so we've been doing this work for quite a number of years, but Another goal that really drove our work for a long time was reducing the number of low-risk youth in the detention system. And so I think if you take a look at our detention numbers in Massachusetts overall, the past 12 years where JDI has been in place, they have significantly gone down, which is great. However, when you look at that and then you look within that, um, the racial disparities have actually gone the reverse way. So while the numbers of young people coming into detention have gone down overall, they've actually increased for our black and brown youth. And so really thinking about for the past year, JDI has really been thinking about, although racial and ethnic disparities has reducing that has been one of our you know anchoring goals um, and everything we do is through an equity lens. We've actually been going through like a reimagining exercise of what would the juvenile justice system look like in Massachusetts? How can we make sure that our system is anti-racist and also developmentally appropriate for our young people that come across Massachusetts? And so JDI functions at the local level. We are in six different counties in Massachusetts, but much more importantly, we're also at the state level. And so at the state level work where I connected with Audrey, we form what's called a JDI governance. And on that, our system leaders, so on that we have like, so the major system leaders that participate on that are like the commissioner of the Department of Youth Services, the commissioner 
our probation, the commissioner of Department of Children and Families, the chief of the juvenile justice. We have court representative. We also have like the director of like the bar advocates. So we have a lot of major leaders, uh, youth serving agency leaders at that table. And so I think that's where Audrey's talking about this this grand plan um, that JDI is trying to take a look at. And so taking a look at across of our, all of our systems and thinking about how do we ensure that this system that our young people are coming into is anti-racist? Like, what does that look like? How can we envision that for Massachusetts? And so I, I have to say that the leadership that I mentioned has been very supportive in figuring this out for Massachusetts. And has said, yes, we do really great work. We're number one in so many different areas, as Audrey touched on. However, we see what the data is telling us. There are disparities. And so how do we help our young people and our families of color that are coming into the system? And so thinking about, I think as we're envisioning it right now, it's really about we, we continuously change policy but we're at a time where we've been changing policy and that hasn't really been working because we're still here, right? So I look at the idea of the numbers have gone down, right, of kids coming into detention, but for whom? So looking at the policies and interventions that we changed, they were great, but they only helped one subset of the population, right? And so how do we arrive at that? And so it's really more about transforming the system and not about changing it. We've been changing it for such a long time, but how do we do something radical and how do we really transform? And for us, we've been working, thinking about, it's really about going to the heart of the work is involving the voices of youth and families, right? And so thinking about that natural connection when Audrey came to us and said, hey, Tula, you know, we've got these FRCs that are working directly with families, but we fear that they may not really have the necessary skill set that they need to be able to support families and young people of color. Like, how do we do that? And so JDI had already been discussing, we developed a curriculum. We call, we're calling it, you know, the JDI Race Equity Listening listening Tour. And for us, it's, it's not a training, it's a conversation, right? So we've been engaging in this conversation for the past couple months with frontline staff at the Department of Youth Services. And it, what that really looks like, it's about engaging in the conversation with those that directly touch families and young people, right? The frontline staff. I think often what happens with the trainings, especially the JDI trainings, they're high level trainings, right? So it ends up that we're, we're training leadership, we're training, you know, chief probation officers, and we're training people that directors and managers and supervisors, not necessarily the frontline staff who are engaging with youth and families on a daily basis. And so we've specifically designed this listening tour to really bring in the voices of those that are directly working with families and young people to say, let's engage you in the conversation about race. Let's talk about you. Where do you sit? What's your racial identity? And what does that mean to you? And then more importantly, what does that mean as, an, as a systems actor when you're working with young people? How does how you view your own racial identity affect how then you internally work with young people? Like, what does that mean and what role does it play? So I think that's really where we started connecting about these conversations of how do we support? I think the work has to be done. So there's like two parts, right? We need to not only do the work at the, like the leadership level, but there's also a lot of work that needs to be done at the direct level staff. We can't do one and then do the other. And I think for so long, we've been doing work at the leadership level, not necessarily frontline staff. So it has to be done in tandem, like simultaneously, if we're going to do the work. And 
I think lastly, I'll just say there's an educational component to this. We need to, you know, professionally develop all of our staff. There's educating ourselves on certain terms and so forth. But more importantly, there's heart work that needs to be done, right? What is that heart work? Because as much as it is about educating folks, you know, on racism, on the historical components of it, if change, if transformation, not just change, if transformation is really going to take place, we also need to challenge people to do their own introspective heart work to be able to, you know, bring about that lasting change. Boy, there's so much to unpack here. This, what you guys are doing, sounds so vibrant. And 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 I, frankly, one of the things I love most about what you said was you said it's it's not a training, it's conversation. It just feels really multi-layered and 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 feels like it has depth to it. So here's my question: How in the world did did you guys? get that kind of energy moving forward when for so many years, so much of what I would see would somebody would develop a pretty training curriculum that would then sit on a shelf. What is it about the culture, I guess, where, where there is this commitment, what sounds like to really take a, a multifaceted, you know, approach uh, in dealing with racial injustice? And that's an easy question. So I think Audrey should answer that one. Thank you, Tula. Because <laughs> you give me I all do. the softballs. I do. Cohort, Audrey. I think Tula, maybe because she's been doing this for so many years, maybe she just has that sense of grace, is a much more patient person when it comes to knowing that this is the only way that change is really going to happen. I think my approach in the past, I had done trainings on sexual assault prevention before I moved into doing racial equity work. And my approach then was, you know, rape will stop for the most part when men stop racing, raping. And my approach to the anti-racism work, I think, before I met Tulu, is very much like racism will stop when white people stop being racist. And I think it was through knowing Tula and hearing her over and over again say, it's got to be a conversation. It's got to be hard work to truly understand that I can't just go in and say, OK, here are the disparities. They are bad. We need to change them because that becomes very much a check the box experience. You know, I thank you. I have now done my racial equity training for the day or month or year or whatever. And that it is only when we do the truly painful and difficult work of looking at not only looking at ourselves and implicit bias, but working with others to say, but wait a minute, what about for you? And and struggle, being in that struggle with them, being willing to be compassionate towards them as they do that struggle that will truly bring about change. But I have to say that that approach, while it is probably the only thing that will work, is also really hard. And think of Tula's team, which is, I think, three people, right? Yeah. Um, it is a lot to be able to really get people to, to get it. You only get there through that hard work. But to really, that's a, that's a one-on-one conversation that, you know, we do trainings for more than one-on-one, but you can't do these broad-based conversations and really expect change. And that's that's the challenge. What's the secret sauce that, that, that keeps this alive? And I tease you about it just being the two of you, but we know it's not just the two of you. I mean, how, how have you convinced leadership to buy in? I mean, I'm just fascinated with that because it you're doing something real different. Tula makes it easy. It's because you were, you were real. I don't think there's a lot of organizations of three people that say, fine, we'll take it on. We're going to transform racial inequities across Massachusetts. 
but but that scares me too because don't you think that's a little exhausting for you Tula? um so i think i think a big part of it right is even though you know my team has said all right this is the work of jdai and we get it i think what's really important you're right scott there's not only me i have an amazing team i say it all the time my team is just they challenge me every day to because i do get exhausted and i do get tired and it's often my team, you know, there are times where we've written something and I'm like, oh, maybe we should change this word and not use white supremacy here. Let's use a nicer word. And then my team will, you know, challenge me and say no. Right. And so, no, we have to start doing this. And so I, I wouldn't, you know, I'd be, I would be wrong to not acknowledge that they, you know, motivate me every day and they remind me. But for even more so for me to even be able to lead the team that I do, I have to say that like I have an amazing supervisor, Commissioner Forbes of the Department of Youth Services has really been committed to this work and makes it easy, right? Knowing that I have the leadership and the backing to say that this is important for our own agency, this is important and we're committed to this. At DYS, we've been doing race equity conversations. I think now for the past four years, we have a group that's been doing this work and looking at our own policies and practices, but even more so on the state level, like I said, the JDI governance, all of those leaders of youth serving agencies coming together every single month. And it's not an easy conversation, right? And sometimes we're looking at data and we're saying we're still seeing disparities, but every single one of them, they've been open to hearing the hard conversations and having the hard conversations. And so that's important. And so knowing that we have that kind of support from leadership, that this is important and that there's that level of commitment, although yes, it does get exhausting at times, but it makes it, it makes it worth the while, right? Like apart from the young people that I talked about serving, there's commitment behind this. You can't do this work without commitment. And so as long as we continue to have that footprint and that commitment, this will not be turned into an online training manual. That doesn't work. Audrey, what is it about Tula that, what does she do that allows her boss, Commissioner Forbes, is it? Yeah. Commissioner Forbes to, to say, yep, right there with you, support you. And because we know this is hard. You haven't given me the answer yet. I want to know what it is. I want to know the thing, if there is a thing the magic of Tula. That's hard to capture. Love it. You know what I? The magic of both of you. Don't worry. I'm going to slip the tape on you. But it. it but yeah. You, so so that she doesn't have to answer it herself. What do you see when you look? You know, is yeah. I I don't know. What is it? So I think two things. One thing is she's brilliant, and I think that actually helps a lot because she can talk to people. Tula brings all of the right requirements to the table. She has a PhD. She has a huge background in this area. I think, though, she also is able to listen to people in a way that comes across as so non-judgmental when it comes to issues of race, far more non-judgmental than I am. And I think you often see when I have done work with all white groups trying to do racial equity work, they talk about things that they confront in terms of racial equity with all this fear. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? That fear is a barrier to change. That fear is the barrier to trans the transformation we want to get at. Because when we're feeling that fear, when we're feeling that discomfort, it's easier to just be like, well, therefore, I don't want to accept this person into my program, hire this person or work with them because, you know, then I'm going to have to deal with all these uncomfortable feelings and the potential of doing something wrong. I think Tula is very good 
at listening to people and meeting them where they are. I think that's huge. And I will also give a shout out to her team members because they're quite excellent at doing this work too. I think the other thing though, is that she takes a long perspective on it, something that I have struggled with, that she knows it's going to be a journey. She knows it's going to take several conversations. She knows it's going to not be one and done. I think you're just a lot more patient than I am. I am so, you know, when George Floyd died, I still have my T-shirt from Eric Gardner saying, I can't breathe. I'm in shock. I'm in shock and horror that we're still here. We're still with this symptom all these years later. That makes me crazy. But Tula has this inner strength. I don't know. So Tula, let me, let me ask you, because yeah. Aubrey's been doing this racial equity work. And yeah. when she came to you, First of yeah. all, did you know her when she first came to you? Did you know Did you know of her? She did gave you, me an award. I gave her an award. I gave her an award. Mm-hmm. So when she came to you and with with this idea mm-hmm. of, of partnering up and, and doing this, you know, it's kind of this comprehensive training program. Yeah. What, what in the world was it about her that made you say yes as opposed to saying, oh, Lord, here we go. Yeah. Another one wants to do good, but obviously that didn't happen. So what what was it about her? You know what it is? Audrey, persistence. She is (laughs) so persistent. And I love that, right? So like, when I'm a fungus. No, no, no. It's great. Because I think that's, so apart from like, that's what we need, right? So as as much as she says she's not patient, I think we, we balance each other really well, right? Although I'm super patient, she's persistent, right? And so I think the persistent, you know, when she is, um, this work is important and she's so persistent of, okay, should, can we try these next people? Okay, what else can we do? And she's always asking what's next. And that's important because I think we recognize my team is a team of three. We can't do this work alone, right? And also just as like people of color, we can't make the change by ourselves. We need allies, right? And so Audrey is not only is she an ally, not only is she committed to this work, it's not really about a checkbox for her. It's a matter of, okay, what else can I do? Can we do another training? She's four or five steps ahead of me, although we joke about it all the time because she, every time the phone rings, she's like, I have another idea for us. I have another idea. I welcome those ideas because that's what we need. We can't afford to stop doing the work. We have so much, like we have so many people to train, so many conversations to engage in. We can't afford to do that because every single day we don't engage in a conversation is another single day a young person is incarcerated, stays another day longer in detention when they didn't have to or is not given the opportunity to be diverted. Like there's so many reasons why we can't afford not to continue to engage in these conversations. And so she gives me energy. So when Audrey's like reaching out, I'm like, okay, I'm tired, but I got this, right? Chula, I need you to do this. Okay, I'll, I'll find time, Audrey. Yep. Do you have time in your schedule? I'm like, okay, I'm going to move something else around. I can do that. Let's do this. So that to me, that level of passion and commitment, but like it's coupled with action. That's huge. That's what's going to make the difference from change to transformation. So. You know, what's beautiful about both of you and and, and the two of you together. The reason I'm so excited that, that we're having this conversation is that, you know, not everybody's going to have the pieces in place, you know, a commissioner who gets it, somebody who's supportive and, and, and they may be fighting a bigger uphill battle. But part of what I'm so excited to share with people listening to this is 
how to make a relationship like this work, you know, I mean, it sounds like that this is the fundamental foundational glue that's going to keep it from becoming a check the box. You know, I finished my five uh, element training. So it's a beautiful thing. So you guys come together. I feel like we're in a movie, you know, it's like, and then they meet and then (laughs) they come together and they decide to work together. So what the, talk a little bit about, you've touched on the product, you've t- touched on what's going to happen. Uh, take us through what this looks like and how people can learn more about it. Okay, but first, did you, when he said that about the movie, who yeah. did you picture yourself being in, in, in the movie? Because I instantly figured out who should play us in the movie. Just who? so you know. I, but don't answer your question, Scott. No, did I, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> Okay, I was thinking I could be Reese Witherspoon and you could be Carrie Washington. How good! Oh my God, that'd be amazing. I love it. Okay, sorry. Well, we'll answer your question now. Oh, that's just too funny. Yeah, Uh, I've lost complete control. (laughs) (laughs) No, we'll go back. So Tula came up with these series of conversations, and then I even forgot to mention this. This is the truly amazing thing about her team. She agreed to train really the entire state. And then I was like, hey, also as a bonus, this is when I really think you started thinking about blocking my cause. As a bonus, can you do a train the trainer so that my entire team can get trained? So we pulled that together in just a couple of weeks. So when you say train the entire state, who is that? Who are you talking about? That we, uh, by the end of doing this, every community provider in the state will be trained. And then as part of another project, which Tula doesn't even know she's getting roped into, but that we're doing for the schools, we will be providing modules to all the school districts that are interested in racial equity training and the impact of trauma and racial trauma on children's trajectory through our system. And so I would say other than who are we missing in terms of the state? You know what? You know who we're missing? I know who we're missing. We're missing the heads of big corporations. Mm. We're missing the money. And so yeah. that will be a journey that we're, I think by the time we are done, we will have hit all the community organizations, the school systems almost all the public good entities, I think we will not have done trainings and that, ooh, I'm writing down what we need to do next. Ooh, I'm thinking capacity and, you know, all the things that your ego tells you why you can't do something, right? Yeah. Clearly, you guys don't have that gene, you know, because you're just like, no. So you're doing a train the trainer and is the idea to train staff within where? who, who, Who gets trained? So, so far we've done the train the trainer. We did Audrey staff, right? So they're going to be trained. Um, the idea is we've actually, we also did a train the trainer for our in-house for Department of Youth Services. And so we're doing an entire like rollout of a different components of a race equity series within the department. And those trainers within DYS, they'll be training staff as they come in. So we'll be able to hit the entire workforce. That's part of the Department of Youth Services workforce development work, right? So that's happening in that, at that level. And then uh, with Audrey staff, as we are building capacity there to be able to train all of the coalitions and the FRCs, these community agencies. The good thing about all of this is that we have said that JDAI will continue to be available. We're going to be Eventually, we'll be like a consulting, right? Like on a consulting basis, we'll continue to check in as these trainings are happening. We are utilizing a pre-survey and a post-survey, and all of that is going to be collected 
by JDI because we want to be able to keep track of this and of these metrics as we're doing all of these, having all of these conversations. And so even though it'll end up being because of capacity, so many other people are doing the trainings, JDI will still be engaged and be able to provide kind of that overview support and ensuring that these conversations are happening, but they're also happening in a way that is like quality in a way that maintains at the core of what we intended when we designed and developed this like listening tour. So that's, that's interesting. If I sign up for this training, what is the goal for myself? What should I, what's my expectation? So if you try and up to, if you sign up to be a facilitator, a trained facilitator? No, if I sign up to, to actually go through the training. Oh, to engage in the, in the conversation, right? So I think one of the things is that it's really about taking a look at oneself and one's, I talked about racial identity, right? Like, what is my racial identity and how does it play a role into the into who I am as an employee of this agency serving young people and families? Like, what does that mean? And also another really important part of all of this entire training, I don't think I touched on this, but it's not only about engaging in a conversation, but it's also about giving staff an opportunity to make recommendations. So we actually use, um, it's out of the Annie Casey Foundation, we use their racial equity, uh, racial equity impact analysis tool. And so one of the sessions, we challenge staff to say, in your agency, identify policies, practice, or programs that you feel may inadvertently cause disparities to happen. And we ask and we use this tool that has five simple questions and we say, utilize this tool to analyze that and then make recommendations. So the curriculum is five sessions. There are four sessions that staff participate in. And the fifth session is really about that the trainers, the facilitators put together a list of recommendations that come from these conversations with staff. So whether it's changing a certain hiring policy or whether it's a program that, hey, we feel this program treats families unfairly. This should be, this, this is what needs to happen for change. So that fifth session, facilitators are putting together a set of recommendations and then we're handing it in to the larger agency leadership to say, you committed to having your staff engage in this conversation. Now, the next step is for you to take these recommendations and figure out what is it that you're going to do? How will you implement them? And then answer back to those staff for, that engaged and participated in those conversations. Where is that change going to happen? So both the participants and the agency leadership have to commit to this. So it's a two-part. Are there other feedback loops? Like how are the, the two of you and the agencies you represent how will you use the information that you learn to help figure out future tasks that Audrey can give to Tula? <laughs> oh, Audrey has already, from this conversation alone, figured out we need to do something for corporations and boards. But in addition, so I keep working with the Family Resource Centers even beyond these series of conversations. And I would like to see this take a deep breath, Tula. I'd like it to, <laughs> to see these conversations become an annual event because there's a lot of turnover of staff. Leadership tends to stay. And I think that's important that they'll have those lessons. But at the provider level, this work that they do supporting families is very traumatic. It's not particularly well paid. It can be very difficult. So there's a lot of turnover. So I think that while it's great that leadership may stick around for a long time and whatever work has been done in terms of racial equity that's overseen by leadership, I think you need to make sure that the ecosystem is constantly having these conversations because without it, you will lose 
everyone being on the same page and moving in the same direction. We had an interesting experience at a school I did a training at several years ago where we asked the kids themselves, what do you see the biggest needs are in terms of reducing racism in your school system? And this one child raised their hand and said, well, whenever I get on the bus, she was Muslim, is Muslim, and wore a hajib. And every time I get on the bus, the bus driver makes a joke. Now, I'm going to assume positive intent that the bus driver thought it was funny or thought it was wouldn't be harmful, but it was some joke about, you know, what do you think it's going to rain today about keeping your head dry? Or, you know, is that your towel that you wear? And it had never occurred to me before that comment surfaced about how little training we do for everybody in the ecosystem, that it is the, the people who clean the building all the way up to the C-suite that really needs to hear those conversations. So that would be my goal with the Family Resource Center, that there's an ongoing conversation about this throughout the year, but then also an annual refresh. If people want to learn more about uh, what you're doing, how can they do that? I am available through the Family Resource Center website. I'm happy to have my information out there. They certainly yeah. could reach out to me. There is a, on our Family Resource Center website, there's lots of racial equity tools that we have put up there. I have been convinced by Chula that just putting them out there just is not, it's, it's sort of the, the basic floor, but it's not going to really be transformative. So I would say be in touch with us. We'd be happy yeah. to follow up. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Last question. So if you could write a letter to your younger self, uh, yeah. what would you say that would give your younger self hope? I would say to my younger self that always remember the why, like, don't forget the why, like when it gets really hard, go back to the why. And, and for me, like I said earlier, the why are like the young people. I'm going to tell the story really quickly because this like defined my career at DYS. But I remember one time I was in a section with young people and it was a secure detention center and they have like a little mini farm and you know, they were just like acting like teenagers being silly and showing us their pets and trying to scare us and stuff. And, you know, we're laughing and joking. And I almost forgot where I was, right, for a second there. So it was it was really interesting because then it was time for me to go. And I realized because my phone, you know, I had another meeting and I got the alarm and I was like, oh, I got to go. And so I went to open the door and I couldn't. Like I, I went to get out. I was like, bye, everyone. I went to leave and I couldn't leave. And at that moment, it dawned on me and I had to look up to the camera, like I had to be let out. And then when I was leaving, I looked back and like, you know, the doors closed, they shut, they lock. And it was just this moment for me of like, wow. And, it, you know, for me, when I was engaging with them, it was like, these are like teenage, you know, young teenage boys. And, and I looked back and they were all youth of color. And it's like, they couldn't leave. I couldn't leave at that moment. But all I had to do was look up at the camera and be let out. They couldn't. And for me, that was my why. It was so defining for me that that's what I would tell my younger self is find out what your why is and you hold on to that for dear life because that will get you through whatever challenges you face, whatever struggles you face. Beautiful. Audrey, if you could write a letter to your younger self, what would you say and why? I think I would tell her that she's stronger than she realized. I had a lot of anxiety and fears as a kid um, that held me back in a lot of ways. And I think I would say to her, you're stronger than you realize. And I, would, I think I would also tell her it all works out 
okay. And if it hasn't been okay, you're not done. Like just sort of that, that faith. I think Tula has a really strong faith that I am often jealous of, but maybe I would encourage that little girl to have more faith in herself that it's all going to be okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, bless you both. Thank you again, guys. Thank you. Take care. Oh, man. Folks, what did I tell you? Are these not two of the most energetic, amazing, smart, talented, committed individuals you've ever had the chance to spend 45 minutes with? I think not. They are, they are quite something. I've included a link so that you can get hold of them if you want to talk about the work they're doing in Massachusetts. And hey, maybe you want to try to figure out how to do something like this in your state. These are the two to talk to. All right. This is Scott Bryant Comstock, the Optimistic Advocate, signing off. See ya. We're happy to share whatever we've got.